And I guess I'm the only reader right now. Or is there something <laughs> yeah, else? I guess, so. I guess you and I can go back and forth if, you, if you'd like to read first, <laughs> or if you want, I can read first. Either way is fine. Okay. Um, I'll start. Okay, so Bismillah. Um, as far as the classical jurists were concerned, the hudud, like all matters implicating the rights of God, were better left divine vindication in the hereafter. In most cases, instead of pursuing a hudud penalty, the state proved a lesser included crime under a less demanding burden of proof and applied lesser penalties, normally involving imprisonment, some form of corporal punishment, banishment, or a fine. Lesser penalties for non-hudud crimes or lesser included crimes fell into two categories, chisas, which is talian, or um, tazer, penalties prescribed by the state for offenses against public interest. Chisas was treated as a private recourse and right, where pardon or forgiveness was always preferable, but tazer was thoroughly profane punitive measures left to the authority and jurisdiction of the state applied to protect the public through deterrence. Classical Muslim jurists enunciated various principles regulating and restricting the powers of the state over tazer punishment, such as the precepts that no crime is committed unless there is prior notice and the ban against ex post facto findings of guilt. Muslim jurists stressed that summary executive punishments are impermissible in all cases involving contested questions of fact or law, and that all such cases must be referred to the judiciary. Moreover, many classical jurists placed a limit on the number of lashes that could be imposed on a defendant, typically with the cap ranging from 30 to 100 lashes, depending on the nature of the criminal offense and the record of the offender. Fundamentally, however, while Hudud punishments were greatly circumscribed throughout Islamic history, what and how Thazir punishments were applied greatly varied from one time and place to another. Okay, very good. And so what is the overall theme that we're talking about here? We're basically saying that when trying to put what we have in the Quran in practice, commonly, uh, it wasn't done. And, and commonly, instead, you had laws written by the, the, the local polity, which we're just going to call the state, even though it wasn't necessarily a nation state. And then they would construct their own, their, their own legal system with some feeling, so to speak, and, and I'm using that word almost uh, rudely, but, you know, the sense that it is an Islamic punishment. And another way to think about this is that the challenge of every religious tradition, every philosophy, is a challenge between what we call idealism and realism. And so idealism is just like it sounds. Realism is just like it sounds. Idealism is, is, is you know, the, the higher goals that you're seeking to reach that you're never going to reach. And realism is basically dealing with the, the practical issues, the complicated issues that are on the ground. And in theory, I'm saying in theory, uh, Islam is both, but it is especially a realistic religion. And, and, and so then the question becomes, if it is indeed a realistic religion, addressing people as they are 
as opposed to addressing people as they should be, then why are these penalties not being implemented? And, and so, so one possible reason is, no, this is actually how it is supposed to manifest. That the Quran is saying, okay, here's how the law should be imagined, but when you actually try to practice it, it's going to be something lower. And an imagine and uh, a different version of that is think of the obligations that a person owes to Allah Taala. And so, let's say five daily prayers for the entirety of your mature life. And in the entire history of the human race, what percentage of people are going to fulfill that? Uh, is the number 50% or is the number more like 1%? Or full fasting in the month of Ramadan and making up whatever it is you miss? Same question. So it could be that what is manifesting is how the law is supposed to manifest. That the language of the Quran just works that way. And when we speak to most scholars of Islamic law, even though they may not articulate it that way, and I'm saying most scholars of Islamic law in the academy, they'll emphasize this point that the Quran is almost never in, his, in the history of Islam fully implemented. So one argument is that maybe that's just how the Quran operates. Another is that the Muslim Ummah has only rarely in history, in I mean pockets of the Muslim Ummah, has only rarely in history ever been of the level of faith where you can actually implement the Quran upon them. So that's more of the faith argument. Now, the question would be, how would you be able to tell people's faith that here we would be speaking of a society which might be as small as 5,000 people where a significant number of the men are fulfilling their public obligation to make the prayer of the mosque, where uh, a significant number of the people are paying their zakats. And so those things that we can sort of measure collectively as possible indications of faith or of, of Iman uh, do then allow for the Quran to be implemented. So it could be that by and large, Muslims just not have had the faith that they are capable of having uh, at a collective level. But this becomes one of the big questions. When the rubber hits the road, when you go from the text and trying to implement it, uh, why does it seem like the default is that it cannot be implemented? And this is a big, big part of the thought of, of Al-Adabu in particular, that uh, when he's talking about Islamic law, he's talking about it from this perspective, that people, generally speaking, look from an ideal perspective of how things are supposed to be. And he's saying, look, if you look in history, it was never that way, except in the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him, and possibly some other small blips in the history of humanity. And by small blips, I don't only mean the small blips of time, 
but small populations. Because even under the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him, how long did the best of generations last, right? So, so the prophet, peace be upon him, as narrated in Sunni narrations, says the best of generations is my generation, then the one after that, then the one after that, and then it goes downhill from there, and I'm paraphrasing slightly. But how long did the generation of the prophet, peace be upon him, rule, meaning the four Khalifas, 30 years. And then you have the Umayyads who take over and it becomes a, a, a tribal dynasty for a hundred years. So these are big theoretical questions about, about the experience of Islam. And then even try to think about the application of Islam in your own personal life how much of it is my imagination of where I'm supposed to be versus where I am? Yeah. And then what is it that's preventing me from getting closer to where, I, where I'm supposed to be? Am I actually making steps to get closer to where I'm supposed to be? And, and so, so implicit in this paragraph, is I think is one of the biggest questions of the entire Muslim experience. And then let me phrase it a completely different way. Uh, are we able to objectively somehow say that the implementation of this so-called Islamic law, is it more fair than the system of law of any other particular society like the United States? And so... Of course, we know that law in the United States is not implemented evenly across races, across socioeconomic classes, and some place in some uh, places in America, the difference is 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 horrendously offensive, to put it lightly. Uh, but in places where there seems to be things that are even, if there are. Is an Islamic polity, an actual Islamic polity in history, more fair or not? And if the Quran was the, was being implemented, we would, I think, by default say, yeah. I don't know how we'd prove it though. And likewise, if the punishments, you know, that are that are being created um, are being implemented, then what's actually the difference between them and Napoleonic code, and what's the difference between them and English common law and such? And then to make it into a, a real-world situation more that you and I can recognize is uh, look at the practice of Muslims in your local community, you know, whether you speak of the city that you live in, the suburb that you live in, whatever the case may be. Uh, and we objectively say uh, that if we look at the religious Muslims in your local community, and the religious Christians in your local community uh, are, are the religious Muslims overall better in character than the religious Christians. So we're going to leave out everybody else who doesn't show up you know, to, to prayer and such. Any thoughts? Even for that last question? I think, uh, I think we just scared Arcella away. She just dropped. Yeah, no, that's a tough one. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
mean, but would you venture to say mm-hmm. that the religious Muslims of of your town are noticeably more upright than the religious Christians? It's <laughs> or is it just too hard to is it is it too hard to yeah. identify? It is or, really hard. Yeah. Okay. At least especially now. I think the past year we have no idea what anyone's doing. <laughs> except yeah. what's, you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, like who is really out there helping? I mean, I, I think in DuPage County, you, you definitely see the Muslims and the Christians working really hard together, you know, mm-hmm. like through Igna Relief and all those things, you know, to really reach out to the community and feed mm-hmm. them and clothe them and do all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's, you know, maybe it's pretty even, hopefully. Okay. So then if it is even, then what do we bring that everybody else doesn't already have. The point that, I, that I'm leading to, that if we are mm-hmm. saying that our package is coming from God, which then means that everyone else's package is at best originally from God, but may be corrupted or lost in the process. We're saying our package is coming from God, the package that we call our dean or religion, and was implemented in the world at least in a moment in history, mm-hmm. if the if the manifestation of that is not all that different, except in physical forms like the clothes that we wear or the way we worship and such, then it may be that it's only better for the hereafter, mm-hmm. and we can make it even more fun by. Speaking of upright, for example, humanists, you know, who, who are speaking of having no religion. So, like in the north suburbs, there's a there's a, a sizable uh, humanist uh, organization. I forgot what it's called. It might literally just be called the Humanist Society. I was supposed mm-hmm. to actually speak there a year ago, and then suddenly COVID began. Yeah, and so yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, it's just, I mean, it's funny because like it should be our you know our qualities, but I mean, there's a lot of bad Muslims now too that are you know. So I'm just saying, if we if we, <laughs> if we leave out the the, yeah. the you know the, the bad Muslims, if we're just talking about the religious no, Muslims, the religious, the religious Muslims, the religious Muslims are getting in trouble. That's the problem. Well, they weren't. Uh, before, I'm a little bit before. familiar with that stuff, so yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. So so essentially, this becomes one of the the theoretical questions. Mm-hmm. That at the very least, we would like to believe, and this includes me, we would like to believe that, I mean, I would like to believe that uh, even uh, as it stands, uh, our religious practitioners still have a, a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And Christians would say the same thing, you know, like, uh, are you all familiar with the hadith of Islam, Iman, Ihsan, the hadith mm-hmm. of Jibreel? Yes. Uh, so you familiar with, with it? We can go through it really briefly. Really briefly. Real quick, please. So, so, and you're probably familiar with it because uh, it's that common. It's nicknamed Ummul Hadith, just like Surah Al-Fatiha is nicknamed Ummul Quran. And so Ummul Quran meaning the mother of the Quran, which means Al-Fatiha is sort of the flashlight through which the entire rest of the Quran operates. And Ummul Hadith, the Hadith of Jibreel, is nicknamed that is sort of the flashlight through which to understand all of the rest of the Hadith literature. Mm-hmm. And huh? if, you, if you were to look at Nawawi's collection of Hadith, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll usually be the second uh, Hadith in that list. Mm-hmm. Big, big, page-long narration. 
in a nutshell, what's taking place. Uh, Ahmad is narrating that we're all sitting with the prophet, peace be upon him, one day, and this man that none of us recognized uh, uh, walks in, and and he doesn't have any sign of travel, so we're all perplexed, meaning we would know who he is, and if we don't, he's a traveler, but there's no sign of, of travel. His, his clothes is completely white hair, jet black, and then he walks through the crowd and sits so close to the prophet, peace be upon him, that it's as though their knees are touching. And then he starts asking the prophet a series of questions. And so he asks the prophet, what is, tell me what is Islam? And then the prophet explains to him the five pillars. And then the man says to the prophet, Sadatta, you have spoken the truth. Oh yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so, so then he asks, what is Iman? Again, you've spoken the truth. What is Ihsan? And then the, the fourth question is, tell me when is the day of judgment or when is the hour? And the prophet says, peace be upon him, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know any better than you do. And then, so then the man says, give me signs that it's near. And then the prophet uh, lists a couple prophecies that the naked sh uh, shepherds uh, in the desert will compete to build tall buildings and that a mother will give birth to her master or mistress. And the man gets up and he leaves. And then the prophet asks Omar, do you know who that was? And he says, in simple language, no. He says, that was Jibril. He came to teach you your religion. And the first interesting point is that Jibreel is taking for the form of a human and the Sahaba can see him. And, and so then it's interpreted from, interpreted from this, that this, this is probably in the, toward the end of the prophet's life that the Sahaba were that purified that they were able to see Jibreel. In his human form. Or in taking the form of a human, yeah. But the common man was, was not able to see him. Is that... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think uh, I've never come across a narration and I've been very curious about this. What's taking place outside? You know, like, mm -hmm. how does he enter? I mean, is he oh. fly? Does he just suddenly appear and then he walks in? So, and then likewise, in terms of his exit, I think that's also a very fascinating okay. part of the whole event uh, that I haven't found narrations on. But uh, what is one simple point to take from this? That people are at different levels of faith that we would speak of the Islam level, and then deeper than that is the Iman level, and deeper than that is the Ihsan level. And to reach Ihsan, it means you're worshiping Allah as though you see him. Because he can't definitely see you. And, and so it could be that by and large, the vast majority of religious Muslims are at the level of Islam, the basic level of faith, essentially fulfilling their five pillars. Mm -hmm. And so thus it would seem that the common religious Muslim community in our society would probably not be that different than the common Christian community in our society in yeah. terms of uprightness and such. Yeah. But that we have a whole system for developing even deeper in faith and deeper in faith while you are still a member of society, in contrast to taking the path of being a priest or a nun, you know, that is the path we find, for example, in Catholic tradition. And, and so it could be that if the unit of measurement of comparing you know, two societies, whether we're talking about the governance of a good Muslim country and the governance, let's say, of the United States in a good 
year or a good state within the United States or a good city within the United States. Uh, it could be that what, the wider your measurement becomes, then things just seem to become more even. But if you mm -hmm. actually do measure the best of the best against the best of the best, then uh, it may be that you know Islam is super superior or not. But this is a question that I often raise even to, to my undergrads, that beyond promises of the afterlife, what can you say that we offer that everybody else doesn't have, especially Christians? We have Muhammad, they have Jesus. And so it's, that's the wording of the question, but the implicit question is, you know, how much of our imagination of Islam is just idealism and how much of it is actually real implement, implementable? So the question you asked, how much does Islam offer to the everyday man in everyday life? Are you asking that question in terms of life in the United States or life in a Muslim country? Anywhere. So I'm essentially asking, what do we have to offer that everybody else doesn't have in some form? So I'd say in my personal life sure. or in like Houston suburbia. Um, I don't know if it, if you don't go seeking it, there's not much to offer, right? So during COVID, we completely shut down. Unless yeah. there was the, the winter freeze, we stepped up as a community, helped those that were in need. But in that, we've shut down. I don't mm -hmm. know how it is the rest of the world. Whereas the Christian community has been active. They are doing online services or online networking and they still have a sense of community we have on the religious level we have none and yeah. i was looking across the street from the mosque okay. right so the mosque was inside my neighborhood and all of my my kids their friends they all went to middle school during the day and friday nights they went to halakha for youth halakha right mm -hmm. Saturday morning, Sunday mornings, my dad would go to the masjid for for breakfast and um, namaz, and then the men would walk, and they would have a pool hall. Well, we shut the seniors' community down. We shut the kids down, and I don't, I can't say much about the men, but I don't think my husband didn't have much of a connection either. Okay. Now, if we then compared things in terms of numbers, mm -hmm. uh, pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be fair to say or not that by percentage uh, the uh, of the greater community, the, the religious Muslims mm -hmm. were a larger part of the greater Muslim population than the Christians were of the greater Christian population? Repeat, I don't follow the question. Okay. So let's say at your local church. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or, or uh, at your local masjid, uh, would, uh, if you uh, throw out a number in terms of uh, how many people are part of the community or how many families are part of the community. Uh, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with Sugarland, Texas and Maria Masjid. Uh, not Maria Masjid, but I know a little bit of Sugarland, but not because of the Muslim community. So I'd say out in Sugarland, we're about 25% of the population. And, and race-wise, Sugarland is split 25% across the board, 25 whites, 25 blacks. 25 Hispanic and 25 Indian, Asian, whatnot. So we represent quite a bit. Okay. And I would attend Boy Scout, Girl Scouts at the church 
inside our master plan community and attend mushes inside our master plan community, right? And um, so I did percentage wise, we were maybe if they, they might've have a one to two ratio. So every one Muslim, you'd have two Christians. Okay, that's how many people are, that's how many Christians, oh, that's how many, oh, you're saying Muslims so are say, one quarter. But in- if you had four people, one would be, I don't care about going to any church, mm-hmm. one would be Muslim and two would go to church. Okay, right? okay. So that's how the split was. Okay, got it, got it. And then um, how many of the Muslims would be going to the masjid? Would it be one out of two? I'd say, yeah, one out of two at least. Okay. And I mean, it depends if you're talking Ramadan Muslim versus everyday Muslim, right? So right, now, well, right now, let's just talk about outside of right. any holy season. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say, yeah, 50% were regular masjid attending. That's a super high number compared to probably most of the rest of the country. Right. But we've got to remember, we're in a master plan community with our own masjid inside mm-hmm. the community. No, but I even think if, you, if you weren't a regular Muslim, you still ended up doing activities in the, in the masjid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, I find that very, very fascinating. Uh, then, if we were to speak of Christians in Lent, like right now, uh-huh. leading up to Easter versus Muslims in Ramadan leading up to Eid, how do the numbers compare? Would it be the same? Like the increase of uh, I, I don't know. religiousness and the increase of, of Christian religious? I, I can't Fair speak enough. on Lent, but I know the masjid would be overflowing. And it, it also helped that Ramadan for the last few years was in the summer. Yeah, totally. Granted, yeah. if you're in a master plan community, all you're there for is to have babies and raise babies. Yeah. So summer was a huge draw for the masjid. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, it's so the question, the fundamental question that I'm raising is if we were to look at a semi-randomly selected Muslim population in the United States, mm-hmm. are they, is there representation in terms of religious activities, higher than the representation of the other communities in the same place. And from what I'm hearing from you, as far as we can tell, it's probably the same. For my community, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and we're even acknowledging your community may not be a, a normal community, but still, it is one of the mm-hmm. many communities across, uh, across the country. And I think that still we're at a point in most of the United States where Muslim representation in religious activities, it's still higher than Christian representation, but that number is decreasing. Yeah. You know, with each generation of, of, of immigrate, of, of, yeah, uh, yeah. generation down. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd say the American climate is such that religion is not a priority. Totally. Compared to other activities. Mm -hmm. Uh, The largest population in terms of religious identification of undergrads, do you know what uh, what uh, what it is in terms of how they uh, religiously define themselves? In the I last few years, and the number atheist? might be as high as thirty uh, percent. Nuns, N O N E. Okay. Yeah. And so, not even going so far as to self-identify as atheist, but just saying, yeah, I don't have anything. Okay. And so, again, what is the what is the the wide question that we're wrestling with? Idealism versus realism in the practice of Islam. And then, if the common practice of Islam is effectively not that different 
than the practice of another religious community, especially the Christians, Jews, Hindus, etc., cetera, uh, in terms of whatever measurements we can possibly identify. Um, let's say lack of corruption or something. Uh, you know, if we are essentially the same, then the question becomes, well, what are we offering? You know, we believe that it's, you know, the, the leader was the greatest human ever to exist. And that generation is the greatest generation ever to exist. And even if we're looking through a Shia lens, the leader is the greatest human ever to exist. And then in mainstream Shia tradition, the 11 successors, the 11 Imams are the greatest people ever to exist, right? And mm-hmm. so whichever lens we're using, the point being that <clears throat> we believe it's the best of the best. But why is it in practice not noticeably and maybe it is. Maybe it's just too hard to measure. You know. Or we might discover that another population is, is doing better than we are. And, and it could be that there's something that is part of our practice that most of us are actually just not doing. Would it be the motivation of the leader of that community or that church? Because that is a bigger driving force, right? So you can well, have these great 11 imams that came around, but if your current leader doesn't is not active in the community, then the mosque will be, or the church won't have activities. So this is sort of what I'm thinking of in my head as well. Okay. Uh, That uh, by and large, a community's religiosity is going to more or less less reflect the greater sentiment of that society. And so in the same way you mentioned a moment ago, that religion itself in America is, is not as important or is less and less important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all drinking from the same water. Yeah. And, and so that is, uh, I believe, why, you know, an upright Muslim community is not noticeably better in terms of social service and in terms of uprightness than a, a, an upright Christian community. Uh, if, however... We have a core group, so including the leader, that is very focused on uplifting the whole community. Mm-hmm. Then I think we'd be astonished by what um, our community can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that because I think a lot of times the Muslims in general they're more focused on like their individual ibadah, mm-hmm. and then they're not really so nice on the outside. Yeah. And I know like with Christians, it's all to change to it. They used to really focus on the niceness and now it's just become politicized and then they're all mean Republicans. But in general, they really pushed on like the kindness and community. And then Muslims were more on the individual level. So they'd be fasting, but they'd be so mean to people outside, mm-hmm. you know, in Ramadan while fasting because, you know, their, their reasoning was, well, we're fasting. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to give us that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, so and, it's just, yeah. But I think when you look at the communities that do have amazing leaders, like I know like IFS is, um, I don't know if he's, he's still there, but um, I forgot his name, but it's like, he's, he's just so nice. Like all his khutbas are so nice. And then there's like Omar Suleiman, you know, like people like that who are really into community building. I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And uh, 30 years ago, uh, I met this, this, scholar who was from the Northwest frontier province of Pakistan, right? So if you're familiar with, with that area, that area itself is very interesting, but he made this point uh, 
that Muslims are actually lions who think that they're sheep. Yeah, yeah I would agree. Yeah. You don't realize our power. And our capability. And I'm just speaking just purely within the realm of faith and upright character. You know, before everything else. Uh, and and sometimes, uh, and it may be that what is just necessary is, is uh, either a leader or a small group to shake us up and get us more active. Yeah. The one thing, uh, like I, I always have discussions with a bunch of my, my friends in community work and such, and over and over the conversation is, okay, we need people to focus on this. We need people to focus on that. And, and this is even a conversation I had with, with a friend today who's very active in the CIOGC, Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago. And I said, every single time we have this conversation, it still always goes back to one thing. And that is that if we were to take all the active people in Chicago uh, in terms of any Muslim cause, you know, we're probably talking about 200 people. So, mm -hmm. And let's even just say it's 1,000. Uh, but it's probably uh, 200 might even be an exaggeration. Um, but it's a thousand people doing the work uh, that a hundred thousand people are supposed to be doing. Yeah, but those two thousand two hundred people are sort of the leaders that then pull in volunteers and set up a program for somebody else to run, right? So yeah, there's yeah. out of the two hundred, you get one to set up one program and get twenty high school kids or twenty mm -hmm. women to come out and do something, right? But you've got to have that leader to take up the cause. And, and agreed, one hundred percent. But what I'm suggesting is the amount of people that we have even doing that part is tiny compared to the size of the community itself. So in Chicago, give or take, we have 400,000 Muslims. Okay. And, and let's say we need, you know, a good number of, of what should be the number of active people out of 400,000. Um, what is the case? I'm saying literally is 200 people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but the number should be in the thousands. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. And so and I'm I saying... Greater Houston area as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's consistent across the board. And, and so the basic point being that most of the problems that we would identify in the community, whether we're talking about patriarchy, whether we're talking about mediocrity, whether we're talking about whatever else... Uh, I would suggest the actual core fundamental issue is that we just don't have that many people that are doing the work. Mm -hmm. And then all these other things then manifest as a result of that. But we don't, we also, if you look at the number of successful people who have the time and the means to give towards community service, we have a smaller percentage, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have 400, you say 400,000 people in greater Chicago that are Muslim, of which I'd say there's quite a bit who are immigrants, quite a bit who are still setting up their families and you have quite a bit with younger children then you have the elderly. So the population in their thirties to fifties that are able to give, who, don't, who have the time away from work, time away from the kids, you have a smaller percentage compared to the Christian or the non, the non population. In terms of numbers, population. of course, yeah. Right, so but if you I'm, look yeah. at the community that, that has the means, and you look at the percentage, how are we doing there? Yeah, and I'm suggesting- percentage to that. Yeah, so, so let's say that number of people in Chicago, hypothetically, is 50,000 people. Okay. Uh, 
Okay. I'm still suggesting out of 50,000 people, it's it's about 200 people that are doing community work. Okay. On, on a regular basis. Now, if someone, if the best that they can do is give donations, then alhamdulillah, right? There's, there's many, many doors to, to, uh, to serve. Uh, it seems as though our generation, I don't know what our rate, uh, ranges of ages here, but our general generation is also, does not donate as much per person as the parents' generation did. Okay. And this is not being spoken in the language of complaint, but just in the, in the sense of objective assessment. That. Uh, but do you think they're donating outside of the mosque as well? So they're donating to other causes? That I wouldn't be able to evaluate, but I'm going to say hopefully. Okay. Yes. Because everybody still tries to meet the, the charity percentage, right? That Islam has versus Christians have 10%. We have two and a half. Uh. I don't know if what is given in Zakat specifically uh, gives us a good assessment of what is the total savings of the Muslim community. Uh, globally, the general sentiment is that a tiny percentage of people who are Zakat eligible to pay um, actually pay. Oh, okay. And there are some countries overseas where it's literally automatically taken from your bank account. Um, and so they're probably easier to assess. Where is that? Where do they take it automatically? Well, in some of the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, I believe Kuwait as well. Wow. And, oh, really? And, so you can't even choose where it goes. They take care of it for you. Yeah. I mean, in, in most most majority countries, and I believe also in India, they actually have an institution that you give the money mm -hmm. to and then they just distribute it. Oh, right. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas for, for us, you know, you, you, you sort of pick your, your charity mm -hmm. um, or your person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, oh, again, overall, what is the, the, the fundamental question is, uh, is what we see in terms of the implementation of Islamic law itself uh, by design that this is how it's supposed to be, or is it falling short significantly of how it's supposed to be? So uh, that's essentially what he's, you know, what's implicit in this paragraph that, that we're looking at right now. Uh, it's eight twelve. Any other thoughts, reflections about everything that we're talking about here? I mean, and so I was saying it's essentially the difference between idealism and realism. Isn't it also the mercy of Allah? Like Allah puts in all those rules and regulations so you don't reach that highest level of punishment? Well, so I would say the mercy of Allah will hopefully, you know, mean that mm -hmm. we don't get mm -hmm. any of the punishment, you know. Uh, but <clears throat> um, still in terms of expectation, you know, I'm expected to fulfill all of the fard. Mm -hmm. And it is a common, like mainstream understanding among the scholars that all of the prayers that I have ever missed, I still owe. Mm -hmm. We hope and pray that Allah will give all of us mercy. It's a, but the point is that here's the list of prescriptions in the text. And it's much higher than common practice of the religious people. I mean, it is also possible that we're just in an era where faith is low, not just the United States. So Surah Al-Waqi'ah, Surah 56, you know, it speaks about three types of people. It's like the best, uh, the, the people on the right hand who are going to mm -hmm. paradise, the people on the left hand who are going to hell. 
mm-hmm. and then the best of the best. And then in the ayahs, it says of the of uh, the people of old times, there's a lot of people who are among the best of the best. But among later times, there are not that many people who are among the best of the best. But don't you think the kids now have so much more Islamic knowledge than we did? Like I went to Sunday school my whole childhood and I didn't learn very much, even though I went every single Sunday. My kids know so much more than me. I do think they don't know. I'm sorry, go ahead, Ursula. Oh, I was going to say what they don't know, they Google and they analyze five different views on it. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, they watch their own videos that they want, like Islamic videos. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I do definitely think that the Mm -hmm. common person today and the common Mm -hmm. young person growing up has exponentially more access to knowledge than mm-hmm. than we did in our years. I mean, I remember growing mm-hmm. up in Chicago uh, mm-hmm. when Ikra Bookstore was a little mm-hmm. tiny bookstore on a corner and their total number of English language books was essentially one shelf uh, or one, mm-hmm. you know, one bookshelf of, of maybe three shelves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so now look at all the stuff that's available just purely in English online, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether we're talking about PDFs or books or lectures and such. Uh, I don't know how much of that translates into knowledge versus trivia. Okay. But don't you think that they have a higher Iman than the, than the practice? I'd say when we were growing up, we focused more on practice, pray this many times, mm-hmm. do that, especially when it comes to prayer. I see my kids and they're both in high school and, um, and I see their friends and I was actually offered at the, the, the local masjid to lead their, their, Halakas mm-hmm. and stuff. I refuse to do that. But they seem to have more iman, more knowledge. They're just the practice of sitting down and praying five times a day is difficult for them. But for them, the discipline of doing anything on a regular basis is difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's just, they, it seems like that's their generation. But knowledge, implementing Islam, understanding, and even like knowing that, hey, this is right versus wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? They have that very clear in their head the confidence in it yeah i think that those who have the confidence have uh, a whole lot of it yeah mm-hmm. um compared to us when we were in college perhaps that percentage is higher too of those who mm-hmm. who have this type of confidence uh, uh what what i am wrestling with is if the prayers are not there then how are we actually measuring the iman mm-hmm. laziness and so, no, what I'm saying is basically that uh, uh, that which we're calling uh, a higher iman, mm-hmm. um, is it a higher consciousness and trust of God? Um, or is it a higher sense that, okay, their identity is as a Muslim? I'd say their identity. And then also in terms of their rosas, their zakat, their hajj. And when they are praying, it's a deeper prayer. Versus when I, I remember... So. Huh? You think so? <laughs> I'm I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I when <laughs> I see these kids praying, and I host a lot of, like, teen boy parties, all of a sudden, in the middle of that playing video games, they'll stop, and they'll be like, oh, it's the mosque time. And they'll do the mosque. That's right? good if that's happening. Um, but that may be just for us, sir. And okay. then, Bishai is totally forgotten, because, oh, I have a test, test tomorrow, and I have this, and this, and this, and it's just off the radar. But mm-hmm. when they pray, they pray with dedication versus, hey, I'm going to just do this and get it over with. I mean, if that is happening, I think that's a fantastic thing. Uh, I don't know how much that's representative across the board. 
Right. But I remember in my generation, you know, people, including myself, we would skip roses here and there, right? They will not skip a rosa. They'll skip namaz. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I, and I, I could be wrong, and I wanted to get your perspective. I feel like the iman is going up, but the discipline of Islam is going down. So, so the point I'm uh, making about uh, iman itself, uh, uh, if we define iman as uh, a God consciousness mm-hmm. and obedience of God, then mm-hmm. if prayers are low, then the iman is by definition low. So you wouldn't separate God consciousness versus the discipline. That goes hand for you? Uh, I'm definitely saying they go hand in hand, but I'm not saying, uh, but I'm not going to, but I'm not saying that someone who doesn't pray has no Iman. No, I agree. I just thought they right. were two concepts or at least. I mean, think of them as at the very least as two circles that overlap quite a bit, you know, uh, yeah. but um, if we have someone who makes zero prayers, zero fast, is it possible for that person to have high Iman? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, the part I'm wrestling with in terms of our whole Muslim society in America is how much of, of our Muslim consciousness and identity versus an actual devotion to the divine. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is actually an identity in an era where I think everyone's also searching for identities too. I think in this generation, I mean, like if you go back to that hadith that you're talking about, like the kids now have more Hassan because they're doing it against everybody else. Whereas yeah. everyone back home, they all prayed. They might not even had Iman in their hearts, mm-hmm. but they, they just, just did it because everyone else did. Mm-hmm. Where these kids, they stop and mm-hmm. they do what they need to do, right? They're going yeah, to high school. Mm-hmm. They may be 1% amazing. of the population, but they're still praying. They're still holding those MSAs. Mm-hmm. Now, I and do they're praying in the library or whatever. Yeah. yeah. In in like the this the the Muslim Twitter, the Muslim TikTok, like that that subset uh, of of Muslim uh, upright Muslim social media, uh, mm-hmm. I do think it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, even like the the depth of the humor, because the humor is also still very very respectful and pious uh, mm-hmm. of, of Islam and. And so I do take those things as very, very hopeful signs, yeah. Uh, and But I'm still wrestling with, uh, mm-hmm. so I'll put it like this. Uh, I do think after 9-11, every Muslim in America has had to, whether we realize it or not, has had to decide, okay, where is Islam in their, in their being? Mm-hmm. And I do think a whole lot of people have run away. And mm-hmm. a whole lot of people have said, okay, this is what I am. And mm-hmm. so might as well be it, if, even if I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so... Uh, uh, I'm saying that that may be a level of faith uh, or it may be uh, a level of confidence mm-hmm. which may or may not be a level of faith. These are like some of the big questions that I'm wrestling with that I See, haven't come to yeah. yet. Because you're probably seeing a lot of the kids who are from Muslim families who do say that they're none or atheist. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the uncles and aunties of our time, they, even if they didn't have it in their heart, they would never say they weren't Muslim. They still said yeah. they were Muslim. They just didn't pray or fast or whatever. Yeah. And they said it was because of a health condition <laughs> that they didn't yeah, fast. Sure. Yeah, you know? They would probably still show up for Eid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Uh, but yes, it's very common uh, mm-hmm. now or not uncommon for, for a person raised 
as Muslim, Muslim name, the whole nine yards, to say yeah. openly, I am not a Muslim. Right. But My parents are Muslim. Discovery of being in their college years. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Do you think it's just a discovery and exploration of being in their college years? Because people will experiment with a lot of different ideas in college, right? Mm-hmm. And then as they get older and settle in life, they'll go back, revert back to their ways. Um, I'm waiting to see if that second part happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do believe it's part of personal discovery for a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's part of personal experimentation, like everything else. Mm-hmm. You know? And for some people, becoming more religious is part of their discovery and, and experimentation mm-hmm. and such. Mm-hmm. So, right. Starting in high school, not college. I think it's starting a yeah. lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long uh, have you friend of we're identifying as none uh say it again please how uh, long have you noticed this trend of identifying as none uh, we officially so this in our meetings in campus ministry i think we first discovered it about three years ago mm-hmm. this is a fairly recent concept where they're saying we're none yeah and so, these are so. 18 to 21 years yes exactly yeah and mm-hmm. or we could say that maybe three years ago is when we first gave it a term for it Okay. You know, that, and, and now it's become a measurement of data. In community or in a non-Muslim environment? I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? They're saying openly, uh, they're identifying as none openly in a Muslim environment or a non-Muslim environment? So uh, in a non-Muslim environment, yes. What are they telling their parents? That I don't know. No, no, I'm talking about are they, mm-hmm. when they say none, they're in a in a mixed class or yep. with or with cl- with college mates or is it an islamic class with other islamic students know, that- this, is, this, this would be you know i'm at a catholic university and so it would be okay. in that setting okay but i had kids tell me that i mean my counterparts in high school they'd be like oh you're muslim that's cool my parents are <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and that was when i was in high school which was a long time ago yeah i mean all teens come to the house who don't they don't want anybody in school knowing they're Muslim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's also that too. Pray and all mm-hmm. that. But in yeah. school, there's no way you'd identify them as Muslim straight out. Mm-hmm. Just out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would suspect even for them, there's probably a lot more comforting confidence once they're in the college environment. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, but uh, to your question a few moments ago, I don't, uh, it's still too soon to figure out, okay, how do uh, these people, uh, these young people, when they're in, so to speak, the real world, yeah. Do they remain uh, separate from Islam or do they sort of go back to it? And then the next phase being when they have children, mm-hmm. do they put their kids in, in Islamic school, you know, Sunday school or something? Yeah, so. I will tell you that the ones that go hard away from religion will come back extremely. And their kids are raised very religious to a point where they're sent to Islamic regular school. And I've seen that across for the last 15 years or so, mm-hmm. as I was with my kids, mm-hmm. the ones that were identifying or even, you know, exploring Christianity or whatnot, they, they didn't even send their kids to public school. They put them in Muslim Islamic schools because they didn't want their kids to experience the exploration process. Mm-hmm. Wow. We yeah. haven't seen that here, <laughs> I don't think, in Chicagoland. Not in uh, large numbers, but mm-hmm. just thinking over the years to some of the people that I've grown up with. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that does represent some of them. Mm-hmm. And again, what is the overall big question? The overall big question within idealism and realism is, uh, is there something in Islam 
that actually produces a noticeably better person and noticeably uh, better community. And I think in belief, we say yes, mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, a Catholic next door would be saying yes. Uh, but then if it's not being fulfilled, what's holding it back? And I do think one aspect is, okay, who's, uh, who's giving primary influence? What's the condition of the leaders and such? Uh, again, these are questions that I, that I literally wrestle with all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think there's also the need for a core group that almost acts like a movement trying to work to get everybody else, you know, to light a fire under people to, to get more active and such. You know, and part of it is also a fundamental need. You'll hear from me over and over again, if you haven't already, is that it's the responsibility of every generation of Muslims to figure out how to practice Islam in such a way that is 100% relevant for their world uh, mm. and is still wholly uh, Islam or Islamic. And more often than not, the Islam, when we, whether we realize it or not, the Islam, the way we teach it is actually inherited from just the previous generation. Mm -hmm. What's given priority, what is not given priority, or it's a response to the previous generation. You know, they focus too much on this, we're focusing on that. Um, mm -hmm. and, as opposed to actively constructing an Islam for your particular time and place. Mm -hmm. These are projects that I'm working on all kinds of different ways, as are a few others. Okay, very good. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? No, JazakAllah khair. All right, we will, well, let me just make sure we're all cool for next week, inshallah. 17? Yeah, mm -hmm. inshallah, we'd be, we should be. And don't forget, I think clocks changed this weekend. So. Okay. Stop right here. So, I'm going to go. 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 I